scripture reading today comes from Isaiah chapter 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And from Isaiah chapter 30, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word that you've given to us. That, Lord, you say it is living and active, and that wherever it goes, it does not return void. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through it this morning. That, Lord, you would soften our hearts and our ears to hear the good news that you have for us. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Does anyone feel tired right now? (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Doug. Uh, Yeah. Does anybody feel like you're running on empty? Does it feel like you're running this triathlon where you just like floundered across the finish line of the swim portion only to then remember, well, Crap, I have the, the bike and the run, run ahead of me left too. That's where the people of Israel were. And that's where God knew they would be when he gave them the words of Isaiah 40. He knew they'd be in the middle of their exile in Babylon. They'd be weary, out of gas, running on empty, completely hopeless. And The words faint and weary are mentioned seven times in these five verses. But it's not just talking about physical weariness, but spiritual, emotional, mental weariness as well. And these these seasons of emptiness, of weariness, they're inevitable. Anyone who's lived enough life can attest to that. That no matter how hard we try, We can never be enough or do enough. And yet life keeps asking us for more and more and more. And that gets exhausting, right? But know this morning you're not alone in that weariness. Not only is everyone else in this room in the same boat as you, but you have something far greater than that offered to you in the promised presence and hope of the Lord himself. You see, Isaiah 40 teaches us that in those seasons when we've come to the end of our rope, we have nothing left, that's actually when the Lord tends to do his very best work in us. If you've been with us at all in the past few weeks as we've been going through chapter 40 in Isaiah, you may remember that this was written to God's people before they were about to be sent into exile in Babylon. 
And these words that were given to Isaiah, they were meant to be a shot in the arm for the Israelites, a hope booster, you might think about it. A shot in the arm to give them hope when they had none of it. And that's what these words are for us this morning as well. Because the greatest answer to our weariness, to our emptiness, to our hopelessness, is to be filled. To be filled with the hope of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at how the Lord fills us with his hope. As he calls us to do three things. To remember who we are to him. To remember who he is to us. And then to wait. So first, he calls us to remember who we are to him. If you look at verse 27, the first verse in our passage this morning, it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Essentially, Israel is putting God on trial here. They're saying, God, why have you forsaken us? Why have you forgotten about us? Because based on where they saw that their lives were headed, the Israelites were accusing God of not being with them or even caring about them in the first place. They were worried he'd completely forgotten about them. Have you been there before? As you think about all the broken and disappointing things that have happened to you in your life that may be looming on the horizon or maybe you're working so hard to make sure that they never happen. Does the voice of doubt ever begin to creep in as you wonder, does God really see me if he exists in the first place? Does he really care about me and what's best for me? Because it doesn't feel like it right now. You know, maybe that's why you've never come to him in the first place. It's this insurmountable barrier between you and him that keeps you from even wanting to trust or follow him. I was talking with a woman who I've met. um, She's my landlord. um, And she's lived here for almost 70 years of her life. She's this amazing woman, loves people, loves Palo Alto. And we were sharing our stories about like how we got here, um, just kind of where the trajectory of our lives have taken us. And I was sharing with her my story that I'm a pastor and I I love Jesus. And one of the biggest reasons that I do is because of this story of loss and tragedy in my life that you may have heard before. Um, But I won't get into the details of that right now because she responded by sharing her story. And at one point at the end, she said that her daughter had died 10 years ago. And she said that was when she lost all faith that there could be a God. Because if he existed in the first place, a good God wouldn't let her daughter die. Because you see, there really are two main kinds of unbelief. The first is a struggle to believe. It desperately wishes that it could believe more or to believe more strongly. But it struggles. It struggles in the face of disappointment, darkness, despair. But there's a second kind of unbelief as well, which is a refusal to believe. That no matter what is said or done, nothing can be done to soften the ears or the heart. And it's this open defiance. 
And Israel was somewhere in between these two unbeliefs, but they were teetering ever more towards that second one, a refusal to, to, to believe because they were doubting God's love for them. But this, this was nothing new for God's people. If you read scripture, you see this refrain time and time again of the doubt of God's love. And there's a theologian who lived hundreds of years ago named John Knox. And I'll paraphrase him here so it's a little easier to, to digest instead of all the these and thous. But it says, the way that Satan first drew mankind away from willingly trusting and following God was by pouring into their hearts the poisonous lie that God did not actually love them. So friends, where are you this morning? Are you struggling to believe that God loves you? Or are you refusing to believe it? Wherever you may find yourself, hear what God does when his people wrestle with unbelief. Because he knows that we will. And I'll first tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't look at you and say, are you kidding me? How could you possibly doubt me after all I've done for you? Do you know the scene in in Star Wars when um, one of the commanders in the, the Empire is doubting Darth Vader's leadership and his decisions? And Darth Vader reaches out his hand and starts choking the guy and he says, I find your lack of faith disturbing. That is not our God. <laughs> and thank the Lord that it is not. But seriously, I, I, think, I think we feel that. That we, we feel that it disturbs him, that it disappoints him, that we don't believe him. But look at what the Lord does instead. He says, O oh, Jacob, O oh, Israel. Who is Jacob? Who is Israel? They're the same guy. That's confusing if you don't know the story. But, but Jacob, who was later renamed Israel, became the father of the nation of Israel. And before him, a couple generations back, was this guy named Abraham. And Abraham was someone that the Lord made a promise to. Even if he was nearing 100 years old and was still childless, he promised Abraham, I will give you a people. And so the Lord is saying to his people here, you are my people. You are the fruit of the promise I gave to Abraham 1,500 years ago. That from this one man, there's now this whole nation of people, and you are my people. So he's reminding them of this covenant that he made. He says, I've made a promise, and I will keep it. I have not forgotten you. And I have this unimaginably glorious plan for you. So trust me. So the Lord gently reminds Israel. He gently reminds us who we are and who we are to him. Because he understands how prone we are to doubt it and forget it. So he says to us, look at how significant you are to me. You are my people. And because of that, you are invaluable to me. And I will never forget about you. And I will never fail my promises to you. So first, the Lord calls us to remember who we are to him. But he also calls us to remember who he is to us. Look at this next verse, verse 28. 
have you not known? Have you not heard? This is who I am. This is the God who has promised himself to you. And then it gives us this this list of God's attributes. It says that God is eternal, the everlasting God. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. And he sees all of history, what what has been. And he sees all of the future, what will be. All we can see is what's right in front of us. It says he is the creator. Nothing is beyond his reach or control. That wherever we go, he will be there. And he reigns and he's in control of everything. And then it says that he never grows weary or tired or faint. He's always at work and yet never gets tired. We need to eat and sleep every day of our lives. And by the end of our lives, we've spent at least a third of it asleep. And we're still exhausted. He never sleeps. And he's always at work. And lastly, it says that God is wise and unsearchable. That we can't even fathom him. And so when life is so often confusing to us, it's never confusing to him. What we have here is a list of God's attributes. He calls us to emulate his character, his character of love and justice and peace. But these are things that we can never emulate. And she's saying, I am not like you. I'm greater than you. And that is good news. David ended the sermon last week with verses 25 and 26, which I'm going to get back to in a second. And, and you'll see why here in a moment. But I'm going to read it this time from the message translation, if you're familiar with that. And this is what it says. Who is like me? Who holds a candle to me? Says the Holy One. Look at the night skies. Who do you think made all of this? Who marches the army of stars each night, counts them off, calls each by name? So magnificent, so powerful, and yet never overlooks a single one. It says he marches out the stars by night and calls them each by name. Do you know how many stars there are? No, you don't, because nobody does. We live in the the Milky Way galaxy, right? Scientists have estimated that there are about 300 billion stars in the Milky Way. And that's one galaxy. Through the Hubble telescope, the James Webb telescope, scientists have also estimated that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies made up of approximately 300 billion stars each. So let's, let's just think conservatively here for a second. There are, what, about 8 billion people in the world? Let's round that up to 10. If there are only 100 billion galaxies, that means each person on Earth could get 10 galaxies. <laughs> each of which has around 300 billion stars in it. And the Lord calls them out by name. And he never grows weary or tired. He does it with ease. That is who our God is. How amazing is that? And you know what's really cool? Is that 1,500 years before when when God is making this promise to Abraham, he says, go outside. 
look up. What do you see? He sees countless stars. And he says, I put them there. And so countless are the stars, that is how countless your descendants will be, you 100-year-old childless man. And so what the Lord is saying both in Genesis 15 when he makes his promise to Abraham and here in Isaiah 40, he says, when you doubt me, when you're empty and weary and have no hope, don't go looking inside yourself for that in your own self-sufficiency. Don't look to other people. Look up. Look up and see who I am, what I have done. Because emptiness has never and will never be a problem for God. We often see it as our, our greatest problem. We want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. But the Lord instead sees it as his greatest opportunity. Because God does his best work when people feel the emptiness inside of themselves and long to be filled. Long to be filled with something of substance. And he offers to fill those caverns in our heart with his very self. Are you willing to let him? Because this is how you can live your life and not grow weary or faint. Because when you come to the end of your strength, that's actually good news. Because when you're there, you have no other option but to give in to him and say, Lord, you've got to take over. And he never grows weary or faint of doing so. He never grows weary of loving you. There is no end to his grace and mercy for those that love him. He doesn't get exhausted, anxious, stressed, overwhelmed. You know, the Lord often has a funny way of forcing me to wrestle with whatever I'm going to be teaching or preaching on on a given Sunday. And, and this week was no different. Almost without fail, it seems, he kind of forces me to live and experience the reality of whatever I'm going to be talking about. So imagine, or take a guess at what my week was like this week. <laughs> I'm weary. I'm tired. It's been a lot of good things for the most part, but I am empty, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. And there were several times this week, truly, when I just, I had no words. I was like, Lord, I cannot do this. I cannot get whatever is in my head and my heart out. I'm, I'm spent. And so I would pray, like, Lord, you're going to have to do this. You have to fill me. And the worst part was when I started writing my sermon. It was like 20% in, and my computer crashed, and I lost the first, like, two and a half pages. And I was like, I am done. I cannot do this, truly. And I got, I literally laid down on the floor. I was like, God, I cannot do this. And yet the Lord reminded me each time, they're my words anyway. You don't need yours. And friends, that's why I'm here today. Not because it's my job, even though that is a part of why I'm here today. But (laughs) it's because I'm here to claim his promise that he fills up empty people. That's why I'm here every week because I need it every week. And so here in this passage, Isaiah reminds us that when we are tempted to question where God is, it's time for us to remember who he is. And so once we've remembered who we are to him and then who he is to us, 
Now what? Well, the Lord tells us in the last verse, in verse 31, he says, wait. Wait. If you have another translation from the ESV, it may say hope or trust or obey. It's all, all the same idea. So what does it mean to wait? Waiting is the way that we live out the prayer, your will be done, not mine. Because it's, it's this submission to him. It's this recognition that he knows better than I do. And when you really stop to think about it, when you really stop to think about who he is, it gets harder and harder to imagine that your life is better in your hands than it is in his. Because waiting, you, get, you see, is this way that we can exercise our faith. That even when it seems like nothing is happening, or that nothing is going how you wanted it to, he is always at work. Even when it seems like he's not. And here's the thing, God works slowly, deliberately. His promises sometimes took hundreds of years to come to fruition, but they always did. So God works slowly. There's a a sticky note on Jess's office wall, if you ever go upstairs and see it. And on it is written something really simple, but something that has stuck with me since the first time I read it. And it says, expediency is not an attribute of God. Expediency is an attribute of Silicon Valley, but it is not an attribute of God. He doesn't care about expediency. He moves deliberately. But in our have it your way right now kind of world, we don't like to wait, do we? And hundreds of years feels like an impossibly long time. But in God's time frame, hundreds of years is only the blink of an eye. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God moves slowly. And notice the last three lines of verse 31. And notice the order that it's presented. It says, they'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run. They'll walk. Seems a little anticlimactic, right? Why doesn't it go the other way? They'll walk and then they'll run and then they'll soar like wings, or like eagles. Why do you think that is? It's because the Lord is saying, Walking is the point. I want you to be patient. Don't run yourself out. Walk patiently. Friends, what are you having to be patient with right now? What are you having to patiently endure? Where do you feel most empty and weary and therefore have the hardest time giving it over to the Lord to trust him with it? Is it in some relational disappointment or loneliness that you feel probably even more acutely around the holidays? Is it this frustrated search for purpose or meaning for your life? Is it this relentless desire for comfort that we talked about a couple weeks ago? 
this insatiable craving for something that you just can never seem to satisfy. Whatever it may be, consider the promise that the God who is in no rush, yet always at work, sees you and is gently asking you to trust him and wait for him to do his best work in you, even in the most empty and hopeless places of your soul. But let me be clear this morning. When the Bible talks about waiting, it isn't saying, like, sit on your couch and do nothing. It's not saying, be passive and just let things happen. If you noticed in the, the Advent refrain, it uses hope and wait interchangeably. Those who hope in the Lord, those who wait on the Lord. You know, this word for wait in Hebrew means both of those things. It's interchangeable. It means to wait attentively, to hope expectantly. You know, hope and wait, we don't often use interchangeably because one has a pretty positive connotation, right? The other has a pretty negative one. Nobody wants to wait. We hate waiting. We like to hope. We hate to wait. But here the Lord is saying, as you wait on me, do so expectantly. Like parents waiting for the birth of their child, that takes preparation, right? You can't just sit back and expect this baby to come in and have done nothing in the meantime. It takes preparation. And so waiting is where we can humbly acknowledge that we are weak and we can prayerfully depend and look to our God of strength to do what only he can do. One of my favorite verses in scripture is at the end of Colossians chapter 1. It's written by Paul. And he says this, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, his being the Lord, that he powerfully works in me. What Paul is saying there is that he's, he's working his butt off, but he's doing so under the power of the Spirit because that's the only place that he can draw strength. It's not by Paul's gifts, but by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so what this tells us is that faithful waiting, faithful hoping, can only come from a heart that isn't frantic and trying to do it all themselves but instead it comes from a heart that is at rest and knows that it's in the hands of the only one who it can count on. Think about it this way. Waiting is almost like a, a chiropractor for our soul. What does a chiropractor do? It, it takes something that's out of alignment and puts it back into right alignment. And so when the gospel is at work in our heart, when we're willing to wait on the Lord, it has this chiropractic, chiropractic effect on our hearts. That they kind of slip out of alignment and lean towards self-sufficiency. But as we wait and hope on the Lord, it puts everything back into place, which gives us this posture of dependence and trust. And just so you know, the Lord isn't asking us to do something that he doesn't do himself. If you look 10 chapters before this in Isaiah 30, and it's in your bulletin, so you don't have to go turning towards it now. But Isaiah 30, 18 says this. 
And it tells us that the Lord is waiting for something too. It says, therefore, the Lord waits. He waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. What happens in your heart when you hear that? God is waiting for you. Waiting to be gracious to you. In other words, he's saying, I'm waiting for you to run out of gas. I'm running, waiting for you to fail once again, to blow it, so that I can give you mercy and grace, something I never grow tired of. It says, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. That word, to exalt himself, means to rise or to stand up. And one commentator said that it's, it's like he's waiting on his tiptoes, ready to pounce with grace and mercy. So friends, what this tells us is that the only thing in the way of you in receiving that grace and mercy is yourself and your insistence that you don't need it. That's the only thing. So if that's where you are this morning, believing that you're all right on your own, you don't need him to step into your life, I urge you, don't ignore or try to numb whatever emptiness or weariness you may feel in your soul. Because that's what we're prone to do. We hate feeling that way. But instead, maybe even this morning, I urge you to go out on a limb and ask the Lord if he might be gracious towards you. Because I can promise you there is nothing that would bring him more joy. Do you know how I know this? Because here's the most glorious of good news. That Jesus didn't wait for us. He didn't wait for us to turn to him before he offered forgiveness. He came to us. And later Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light and he will give you rest, rest for your very soul. Do you know why his yoke is easy? It's because he's already done the heavy lifting. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, he's already done the work for you. And it says that he is even now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Do you know why he's sitting down? Because the work is done. It is finished. So friends, are you tired this morning? Are you running on empty? Are you weary? If you're not right now, I'm certain you will be soon. (laughs) And you know what? There's nothing the devil would rather do than take away your hope. He doesn't want your strength to be renewed. He wants you to get weary, empty, hopeless, to doubt the Lord's love for you. But what he fails to take into account is that Jesus does his best work with empty. You know what? He emptied himself to do his best work. If you look at Philippians 2, it's this chapter that talks about the humility of Christ. And you know, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, is that Christ emptied himself by giving up all the glory and the privileges and the comfort of heaven to come to earth as a humble, suffering servant who would give give up his very life for his people on the cross, all to show them grace.
So friends, if that's, if that's where you are this morning, if you feel weary and empty, good. Because now you're ready for the Lord's grace and mercy to fill you. Because have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, and he has come to us so that we might come to him. And he's coming again. He has promised he's coming back, and he will make all things new. But until then, he calls us to wait. Does he seem worth the wait to you this morning? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you that you you didn't wait for us to turn to you, but Lord, you came to us while we were still your enemies, it says, Lord, because you love us and you were so eager to pounce on us with your grace and mercy. So Lord, would you so fill us with your hope, with your mercy this morning, that we could patiently walk the road that you've laid before us until you come again. Lord, we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, who'd empty, who emptied himself so that we might be full. Amen.